the ASCO Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. I'm Professor Sam Twizzleton, Director of Sheffield Institute of Education at Sheffield Holland University. And Sam, we're here in Westminster. I'm here because there are talks going on around pay and conditions. Uh, we've had a report out today from the National Foundation for Education Research, which is, I think it's fair to say, pretty bleak about teacher recruitment and retention. Just start us off by explaining where you think we are in terms of the issues. Well, clearly, you know, I mean, the report wasn't a surprise, sadly, but, but pretty stark, isn't it, in terms of, well, a number of things, really. I mean, one of the things that um, was interesting in that report was a lot more vacancies, a lot more adverts than this time last year. So this time last year, we were in a bad place. But what this is suggesting, that actually there's a lag in the, in the data in terms of um, ha, ha, just, just how many more t- teachers we need. Um, we, and we already know we, we need a lot more than, than are applying. Situation is bad, um, and it, a lot of it is created by lack of retention of teachers. This is something I've been banging on about for many years. Government seemed to sort of take it seriously in terms of the recruitment and retention strategy, which had many good things in it. But but you know it's not really working. I mean, I, I, I suppose you could argue it could have been worse if we hadn't done those things. Um, but there's there's something going badly wrong. Uh, obviously, Jeff, you you and I talked about pay, and that, that's in the report as well. But I don't think it's just pay. It's clearly workload is an issue, stress is an issue, flexibility is something that really stood out in that report. Um, and, and and I know from a, um, a previous um, uh, meeting that I attended with NFER um, that when you look at the comparison with other graduate professions. The, the, the increase, massive increase in flexibility across all of them apart from teaching. Uh, it was already happening pre-pandemic, but obviously pandemic has, has massively accelerated it. And it seems to be a really key, important thing that graduates are looking for and they're just not finding it in the teaching profession. Yes, well, as you say, stark, as I say, bleak. And I think that pandemic point's important. Well, pa- pandemic on a whole range of fronts has... Um, shone a spotlight and accelerated certain things that were already probably patterns. And I just wonder whether graduates are finding there are more graduate jobs available to them. They've had time when they have been working at home, whether at university or whatever, and they're now thinking, actually, what flexibility means for me is the ability to be able to work at home in a way that teaching will never be able to do, or at least rarely be able to do. And therefore, the pay issue probably comes into sharper focus in a, in a way. Yeah, I, I do think there's. I think definitely working at home is a big a big part of it. But my children are of the sort of the generation that we're talking about. We're talking about youngish graduates, and and they they they're looking more for a sort of portfolio approach to how they do things. Not necessarily one full-time job doing the same thing all the time, but but doing a range of different things, which clearly. The ability to work from home opens that up that possibility. So you might not be doing the same thing from home. You might be doing different things on different days. Uh, adding to your CV, adding to your skill set, probably opening up the possibility of, of working internationally, which is another big attractive thing. So, um, so yeah, you know, there are things that, that it feels like it's hard for the teaching profession to be able to provide. Although I do wonder whether, if we think about how groups working together in the form of multi-academy trusts and similar... Um, can, can create at least some roles that maybe offer su- some of that flexibility. So I do think that we need a bit more creative thinking. I don't think it's going to give us the full answer, but it, it might help a bit. It might make, um, certainly in the sense of, of career pathways that open up flexibility, open up opportunity. 
um, I, I think are possible when, when you have roles that can work across schools rather than just in an in individual school. It, it, it sometimes feels like we haven't got kind of professional headspace to think this thing through Absolutely. a bit more radically because yeah. if you look at how technology is transforming so many parts of our lives, how we shop, how we read maps, you know, all of that, that stuff. In educational terms, yes, yes it's done some stuff, but it, a lot of that workload issue could be done, I would have thought, by technology. There are examples yeah, of that. Yeah. Oh, and I just wonder whether that needs us more seriously to say, we can't carry on like this, let's do something different to make teaching a 21st century profession in the way that healthcare is starting yeah, to become it. Absolutely, and I think many of us during the pandemic thought, well, this is a real opportunity to really rethink and, and, and think again. Um, and then, and then I think, you know, that was probably in the first few weeks of lockdown when it was sunny and we were all kind of yes. <laughs> reasonably optimistic about things. Um, and then, and then we all ended up just firefighting for the, you know, from from then until now. But but I think it's still true. We we do need. We just need to sort of stop, take a breath, take a step back, look at what's happening internationally. Um, I can't claim to know, but there, there will definitely be some lessons um, from from what, what what works elsewhere in the world. Um, but, but yeah, I agree. It's not. I think we're tinkering at the edges a lot of the time. I mean, is one of the lessons from overseas, whether it's the Ontarios of this world or the Finlands of this world or the Shanghais of this world, all of these kind of um, international big boys, that it is about the status of the profession so that graduates are thinking that's a profession I want to be part of? De definitely, definitely. Um, I know too many people, and I, I count myself uh, uh, as one of them, um, when I was a teacher uh, in the early days of my career. They feel slightly ashamed when they meet up with their friends from university um, to admit that they're a teacher. That's a terrible, terrible. thing, isn't it? Absolutely terrible. And I, I, I really was actually proud of being a teacher, but I knew that society didn't necessarily see it that way. You mentioned Ontario. That's, that's the one that I've got the kind of most direct experience of having... Um, been out there a few years ago, and they made it. Then they had a ten-year plan for improving the education system, and the number one priority that was the esteem of the profession. I wish I had thought to ask them more about exactly how you do that, but they had done it, and it did work. Um, not only had they created a system where they had more people applying to teacher training than there were places, a lot more, so they could be selective at that point, but then actually trained more teachers than there were vacancies for, which seems a bit bizarre. Um, but what that created was a highly competitive um, process to, to gain a, a, a teaching job once qualified. And then everything that flowed from that was a, a profession that was trusted. So they had nothing like Ofsted. I think they had uh, developmental school improvement processes in place. So, you know, schools weren't just completely left to, do, to, to, to get on with it. But it was all done from a position of trust. You know, we, we assume that you're doing your best. Um, but there might be some things that you've not thought of that will help you to, 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 um, to add to that. And um, the, the just whole feel of the profession uh, was so different as a result of that. The workload didn't seem to be as intense. Um, the sense of opportunity and career pathways was much, much clearer. They didn't have the retention problems that we have. I mean, this may have changed now. It was 2015, I think, when I went there. So things may be, may be different. But definitely the esteem of the profession has got to be something that we've really got to get serious about. And then finally, let's, let's just talk about what comes after the esteem of the profession, which is people being trained to become teachers. We've had this big review of how initial teacher training works and a new approach. I wonder if you could both, and you, you were right at the heart of it for a, for, yeah. for a while, would you mind just explaining what was the thinking behind it and how you think that is playing out? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I think there were some positive intentions, despite you know an awful lot of negative, understandable negative um, press around it. That there were positive intentions in the sense that you know, going back to the conversation we've just had about you know a more radical rethink. Um, I think certainly the early conversations I had at the point where I agreed to join the group was we want to, to radically rethink initial teacher training and it was at system level so at that point it didn't feel like it was particularly pointing to particular providers and saying you're doing a bad job it was more what can we do as a system to improve the way we, we um, train teachers and many of the things that came out of that review I'm really happy to defend so we've got new criteria which put, put a really high premium on the importance of really focusing in on aspects of practice and building a really carefully sequenced curriculum around that, putting school experience at the heart uh, and rather than just sending um, trainees into school and sort of praying that um, uh, they'll, they'll get the support and the experiences they need to get better in their practice, which is how it can feel now. And bear in mind two thirds of the time of a, of a PGC which is only nine months long. Um, is spent in schools. That school bit is so important, and we took that really seriously. So the criteria, you know, had a lot to say about mentors, lead mentors, mentor training, all of it linking up to the student experience in terms of the curriculum and, and the sort of sequence that they go through, um, and the different needs that they have at different times. I'm really happy to defend all of that. The bit that worries me, and I wrote, uh, uh, I did an interview with um, Tez a few weeks ago, was the accreditation process has been badly handled it was a very it was always going to be flawed because they just, just simply didn't have the capacity and the expertise in the department to do anything other than a really superficial desktop exercise as a result of which it's taken up a lot of people's time some people haven't got through who should have got through i imagine that there are probably people are people who uh, did get through who shouldn't because there's no way you can really judge the quality of something as complex as ITT by people who are experts in it um, looking at somebody's documentation without even the ability to talk to them about it. So that, 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 that's the bit that worries me. Hopefully we'll get beyond that and things will settle down and we can all focus on the new criteria. If they don't go far enough for me, I'm happy to defend them, but I still think that we've got a problem with school placement capacity and, and being sure that we've got enough high quality uh, experiences in those schools for those trainees to really, you know, we're asking so much of them, we're asking them in, in you know, nine months to be able to hit the ground running, to, to be able to support um, pupils' learning um, as if they were experts and they're really, really novice at that point. And I feel, going back to the start of this conversation, that's probably another reason why we're having a problem with retention, because it's in those early years of somebody's career where we lose most of them. And I think the expectations on them, and therefore the stress and workload that comes with that, is, is a reason that's driving them away. If they've got other options, as, you know, as discussed, more flexible options, um, why, why would you stay? when you, that's how you feel. I mean, just one final reflection for me. When I was head, we had a partnership with a school in Shanghai for 10 years. Now, what was striking is that the maximum teaching time that a teacher had was 50% of their time. Yeah. And it wasn't like the other 50% was free time or time when you were just sat in your classroom marking. The expectation was that your professional development, the mentoring and coaching was built into the school day, sometimes in your own school, sometimes in neighbouring schools. 
and professional development has always felt to me like it's something that happens at the end of the day or the end of a term too much it's a kind of additional luxury that's usually the first thing to go when when times are hard or, or there's not enough money uh, yeah we, at Sheffield Helen we actually evaluated the Shanghai Maths Project which was when um, a lot of prime school teachers went to Shanghai saw how they did it there and then, and, and then tried to bring that practice um, back to this country you know you won't be surprised to hear that it was very difficult to replicate in this country because of exactly that the the um, the fifth percent teaching and the other 50% being spent on really high quality well-structured professional development directly related to the teaching that they had been doing that day and, 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 then, and then how it links to what they were planning to do next you know it, was, it, it is a game changer if you can do that now one of the things that you could say is that in Shanghai the class sizes are very big that's one of the reasons why they can probably do it that way maybe that's an example of radical thinking because mm. um, that would actually give you more flexibility the professional development doesn't have to be in school you know you could be doing that at home you could be doing it in, in, in a range of ways um, so that might you know, those, those kind of things. I know a lot of people will throw up their hands in horror at the idea of huge class sizes, as I would if I was in school. So I'm not, not definitely saying that's the way to go. But it's that those kinds of... I think we need to question some of the assumptions. I agree. That and that's in. where the technology thing... I mean, you, yeah. might, you might have 50 kids in a classroom, but potentially some of those kids could be getting really granular feedback on what they're yeah. doing from the robots exactly. as it were Absolutely. Yeah. leaving the humans to do the human yeah. stuff exactly as you say technology just opens up so many more possibilities and i think even five years ago we, we realized so yeah it would be great if we could do it maybe a change of government might give an opportunity to have this radical rethink i would hope so I hope we don't just carry on grinding along in the way that we are. No, we, we, we can't. We just can't. Can we haven't got enough tissues. Let's uh, make a date to have a positive conversation when we've transformed this. Yeah, yeah, Professor yeah. Sam <laughs> Tisselton, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> the Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.